Morning. It's really good to be here today, isn't it? It's my first time speaking to you this morning, so may I take this opportunity to wish you all a very happy new year. But better than that, let me pray for God's blessing for you all in 2020. You'll recognise this as being based on a prayer that Paul prayed for the church. So I'll just invite you to close your eyes for him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that according to the riches of your glory, you would strengthen each one of us here today with your power through your spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. I ask, Father, that we would be so rooted and grounded in love that we might have the power to grasp just how wide and long and high and deep Christ's love is. And although that love is greater than we can comprehend, I pray that we would know it in our hearts so that we may be filled to overflowing with every good thing that you have for us. I pray that in 2020, Father, you would do immeasurably more than we ask or can even imagine according to your power that is at work in us. To you, Father God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, as you know, I hope, we're going to have a week of prayer here in February from the 11th to the 15th. And part of my purpose this morning is to help us prepare for that, because I really want us all to get involved. Now, I'm not exactly sure of all the details, because it hasn't all been worked out yet, but it's going to be good, okay? We're going to set up the upstairs here at Beacon with lots of different zones. And we're going to try and make them easy to interact with. And so I think what we're going to do is we're going to put up some gazebos and we're going to fill them with all sorts of stuff. There'll be information and pictures to feed our minds and there'll be other things to engage our bodies. Um, And I think this is going to need the help of some of you more creative types. And uh, I think Nathan will be calling, or maybe he already has called on some of you. Um, If others of you think that actually that's something you'd like to be involved with, setting that up, then please do speak to Nathan. I'm sure he'd be delighted. See, each zone is going to cover some different area of church life. So that might be eat well, spend less. It might be revive. It might be little lights. I'm not going to go through everything. But it might be things like our building or finances. It might be our involvement with overseas mission. See, our life and our mission here has so many different facets. And we're going to earnestly pray for God's continued blessing on each one of those things. So the space is going to be open from Tuesday through to Saturday. And we would love to see people here at all hours um, engaging with our Heavenly Father. Well, we believe, don't we, that our prayers make a difference. D.L. Moody, a great evangelist, said this. He said, every great move of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. And we want to see God move. Now, we thank God for what he is doing already, for what he's already done. But don't we want to see more? And when I say more, I don't just mean more in terms of quantity. Yes, it would be great to see more people attending the Eat Well, Spend Less course. It'd be great to see a helping hand able to um, give provisions of food and of, of, of clothing and other things to those that are in need. It'd be great to see more children and parents coming to Little Lights, or maybe. <laughs> we bless the community in so many different ways. And this is all part of the gospel message. 
all part of us showing the love of God to those around us. But wouldn't it be great if we saw more of those people that we engage with becoming Christians? To see more of them being healed. To see them set free from addictions. To have prophetic words for them that will unlock situations and reveal God's love. See, we don't just want to meet people's material needs, good though that is. We want increasingly to see God working supernaturally in and through us. And I know that in one sense this is nothing new. As a church, we've always taught and believed that God can and does act like this. And there are some of you, a number of you, who already faithfully pray for the sick. Some of you already bring words of knowledge and so on. But what we as a leadership here want to try and do is raise our expectancy as a whole body. Not to leave these things to a faithful few, but to see that God desires to work through each one of us. Now, I know for some, and that includes me, this is going to involve pushing against our comfort zones and beyond them. But together, we can do it. Together, we can make this a place where we really expect to see God moving in supernatural power. So as we prepare for this time of prayer, what I want to try and do is paint a bigger picture. I would like us all to come to a place of greater expectancy, a place of greater faith, together, What I want as we come to pray is for there to be a single unifying factor to our prayer, that across all the areas of church life that we're going to pray for, there will be a cry to God to move in greater power, that there will rise in all of us a desire to see things that we have never seen before, to see God do things that we could never have done on our own. And I don't think this is going to happen all at once. I don't think, and I may be wrong, but I don't think we're going to pray for this one week and then it'll all be done. I suspect that this is going to be a journey for us. I think it's going to take perseverance and commitment. It'll be a journey and we'll all have to encourage and support each other on the way. And there'll probably be ups and downs. But I think this week of prayer is going to be a step on that journey. So even today, I encourage you, make space in your diaries for that week. Make it a priority, and let's start to anticipate that time and to prepare for it. Okay, so let's now, let's look at the Bible together. And as we prepare to pray, it seemed to me a good idea to start by remembering some of what Jesus taught on the subject. So let's look together at the beginning of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And we can find that in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read from verses 9 through to 13. This then, Jesus said, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we're just going to look at the first few phrases of that this morning, starting then with our Father. Clearly it matters who we pray to. You might remember the story in the Old Testament of the prophets of Baal. And they were calling on him to bring fire on their sacrifice. And they cried all day. They danced, they shouted, they cut themselves. They were desperate and they were determined. 
But Bale didn't answer. Because at the end of the day, Bale was just a lump of wood. Bale had no power. He couldn't do anything. It matters who we pray to. So when we pray, we pray to the living creator God, the all-glorious, all-majestic, sovereign ruler of the universe, the holy and majestic king who sits enthroned in the highest place of honor. This is the true God. This is the God who can do what he wishes. And this is the God that we pray to. And in the Old Testament, you'll see people addressing God, using that kind of, those kind of words. So, for example, Nehemiah started one of his prayers like this. He said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. Like, what a great way to start a prayer. But notice, this isn't how Jesus teaches us to pray. He says, when we pray, we should address God as our Father. And it's difficult to overstate the significance of this. It is just so important that we grasp the truth of it. And it's hard. It's hard because it is amazing. But it's a truth we need to keep coming back to. Because as we address God as Father, we don't diminish him in any way. He remains all that he ever was, awesome, majestic, powerful, and so on. But as we address God as Father, we remind ourselves of who we are in relation to him. If he is our father, then we are his children. And that, if we can grasp it, is a transformational truth. As we address God as our father, we remind ourselves of our identity. And knowing who we are will change the way that we pray. It will change the way that we live and, of course, it will change the way that we relate to God. So I want to spend a few moments just looking at some of the ways in which understanding our identity as children of God makes a difference. And the first is this. If God is our Father, then we are completely secure, and this security brings freedom. We are God's children forever. There is nothing that can separate us from the Father's love. There is nothing that we can do that will separate us from the love of our Father. So we can always come with boldness into his presence. There is no barrier to us coming to our Father in prayer. Our sins have been forgiven. There is no condemnation. Our Father loves, accepts, and welcomes us. He delights for us to come to him. We are always free to come to our Father. And outside of ourselves, there are no circumstances, no people, no schemes of the enemy. There is still nothing, not even death, that can separate us from our Father and from his love. And this puts a rock under our feet. This makes us secure. And again, this security brings us such freedom. A long time ago, when I was a young person, I went on a holiday with the church youth group. And we were on a beach in Wales, surrounded by high cliffs. And one of our number decided to climb one of these cliffs. Well, he fell. And we had to get a helicopter out to come and rescue him, which I'm sure must be a youth leader's worst nightmare. <laughs> you see, climbing cliffs might be exciting, 
but it can be dangerous. But imagine now that you're in a harness, and that harness is attached to a secure rope. Well, now you can climb in complete safety, so why not have a go? There's nothing to lose. You're secure, so you're free. And clearly the point of the illustration isn't to encourage you to go rock climbing, though, of course, you may if you wish. But what about offering to pray for someone? Well, what about coming up the front here if you think that maybe God has given you a prophetic word? There'll be different things that different ones of us will consider to be risky. And we won't always get it right, and sometimes we will slip. But my encouragement to you is to step out, knowing that you are secure. Now, it's true that knowing that you're secure doesn't necessarily make it easy. Many years ago, Stephanie and I stood on the edge of a high cliff, a high bridge in South Africa with a rope tied to us. And knowing in our heads that we were secure didn't make it easy for us to step off. Sometimes you only have the experience of security after you've taken the step. And that's what our Father asks of us. He wants us to depend on him for our security and to step out in obedience. And he promises that when we do, he will always be with us. Second then, the way that we view God will affect our expectation of how he will respond to our prayers. Think of the Pharisees. They saw God as a harsh master, strict, distant, and hard. And as a consequence, they didn't really expect much of God. They thought they had to earn his favor. They thought that any right standing they might have with God would be as a consequence of their stricter obedience to a set of rules. And so their prayers were small and inward-looking. What a contrast to Paul, who understood that God was his father and understood that his father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We have been lavished with grace, he says. His prayer was that we would all know the amazing hope to which we've been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the incomparably great power that God has for those of us that believe. See, as we understand God as father, then we not only see him as the source of all that is good, but we expect to receive it. Jesus said that even earthly fathers, in all their imperfection, make some provision for their children, how much more, he said, then does our heavenly father long to give good things to his children? We don't have to beg an unwilling God for scraps. We come to a father who is generous and eager to lavish us with good things. Third, the more we recognize God as our father, the more we realize that the boundaries and possibilities for us become greater. Now, Keith reminded us last week that we're encouraged often to be like little children. We know on their own, little children are pretty limited in what they can do. But when they're with their mum and dad, well, suddenly their world gets bigger. The possibilities of what they can do are greater. See, with their parents, they can go out to the park. They can climb bigger trees. They can jump bigger puddles. With their parents, they can afford to buy things they couldn't get on their own. They can do projects that would be too hard on their own. They can go to places that would be too dangerous on their own. As we recognize God as our Father, we'll come to realize that we can do so much more when we depend on him than when we try to do things on our own. 
We're faced with a lot of need here as a church, and we do try to meet that need. But if we try to do this in our own strength, sooner or later, it's going to get too much, and we're going to give up, or we're going to burn out. But with God as our Father, we have the strength and the resources and the power to do all of that and more as we learn to depend more and more on him. Now, clearly, this is far from being an exhaustive list. We could spend a whole sermon series looking at the fatherhood of God, but I just hope that gives you a little bit of a flavor. And actually, this week on Freedom in Christ, we looked at um, the fatherhood of God there, and, and there was a list of declarations about God as our father. And I would encourage you, if you were there, go back through that list. It's really helpful. If you weren't there, try and get hold of a, of a photocopy, at least of that one page, and, and, and go through it. It's really, really important and very helpful. So yes, we come to the eternal, sovereign creator God, but we come to him as our father. We are his children. And the more we understand and embrace that truth, the more our lives and our prayers will be transformed. We'll have greater security, freedom, strength, and expectancy. So we move then to in heaven. And don't worry, I'm not going to do the whole of the Lord's Prayer two words at a time. But this is important. We've looked at God as our Father, but now we're reminded this is not a Father like any other. This is our Father in heaven. And again, there are three points I want us to note here. First then, then, this is not an earthly Father. Now, earthly fathers, even the best of them, are at the end of the day still human. They're limited in many ways, in their strength, their knowledge, their resources, their love, their patience, their wisdom. And of course, there are many earthly fathers who fall far short even of the human ideal. And some of you will have experienced that kind of father. And whilst it's hard for any of us to really grasp what it's like to have God as our father, for some of you, it will be even harder. I just want to acknowledge that. But I also want to encourage you not to see it as an insurmountable barrier to you experiencing God as father. And if that's something you struggle with, I would really like to encourage you to come and we would love to pray with you afterwards. Whatever our experiences of our earthly father, good or bad, we don't want to let their weaknesses and failings colour our expectations of our heavenly father. Second is the fact that this is our father in heaven. Now, the word heaven is used in different senses of the Bible. One of these places is as a place above. So when we read that God is on his throne in heaven, we understand this to mean that he is in a place of absolute power and authority. See, when we come to God as our heavenly father, we come to a God who is utterly unconstrained by any human limitation, or indeed any limitation at all, except that he must be true to his character of goodness and love. Our heavenly father created the world just by speaking the word. He has unlimited resources, unlimited power, unlimited authority. When we come to our Father in heaven, we are coming to one who has the power to act. But the other way the word heaven is used in the Bible is more generally to describe the unseen world, that whole realm that exists beyond the physical world that we live in. See, we see and experience day to day the material, natural world Our Father is immaterial and supernatural. He's above and beyond the natural. Jesus is reminding us here that what we see is not all that there is. 
The world that is beyond our own is even more real than what we see. You see, C.S. Lewis talked of heaven as being even more solid than the reality, the, the reality of which we just see the shadow. And whilst we mustn't make the mistake of considering this world less than very good, it is, after all, the world that God made for us to live in. We mustn't either make the mistake of seeing this world as all that there is. And this is really important as we come to pray. You see, we're conditioned as a society and our culture in particular to limit our view of what is possible to that which is naturally possible. But our God made the natural world. He himself is beyond it. His actions are by definition supernatural. And as Christians, we need to be awake to the reality of the supernatural realm. And some of you are much more awake than I am. But I want you all to, to encourage you all to pray with me that our eyes be opened to the supernatural or the heavenly realm. That our expectation of what God can do not be limited to his actions within the natural world, but our expectation be that he will do things that are clearly supernatural. So we have our Father in heaven, and this is followed by hallowed be your name, or honoured be your name. The sovereign creator God has revealed himself to us as our Father, but we shouldn't and we mustn't make the mistake of reducing him to a cuddly, familiar, indulgent sort of figure. Yes, we start with acknowledging God as our father, but we remember too that this is a father that we honour. We are his children, but we are not equal to him. We have a very special, even an intimate relationship with him, but he is still the holy God. We see a parallel with Jesus. In the Gospels, we see him walking and eating and talking and drinking and crying with his disciples. They were his friends. But then in the book of Revelation, we see him as a magnificent, powerful, terrifying king. And he is truly both. We sung this morning, it just brings to mind, the lion and the lamb. You see, he is still, and so it is with God the Father. He is our loving, tender, gentle Father but he is still the awesome, glorious, majestic, all-powerful ruler of both the seen and the unseen worlds. He is holy and worthy of honour. As we seek to know and experience God more, as we ask him to be more powerfully with us, I think that it is the holiness of God that will be one of the things that we will become most aware of. See, as you look through the Bible, from Moses through to Isaiah, from Acts to Revelation, whenever people encountered God... It was his holiness that defined that encounter. And actually, as you look through the accounts of revivals through history, you see the same thing. Our Father is a holy God, and that must always shape our engagement with him. It's your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we want, isn't it? To see God's kingdom come, to see his will done, Let's just back up a moment and remind ourselves of what we mean by God's kingdom. See, these days, because of our history and because of the way the world is structured, when we hear the word kingdom, we tend to think of a geographical area. But that's not what we mean when we speak of the kingdom of God. When we hear of God's kingdom, what we should be thinking of is the extent of his influence and reign. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we aren't praying for something that is in the future to come more quickly. What we're praying is that here and now, God would increase his influence in our earth, in our community, 
and here amongst us. And as we pray for this, it's good to have in mind something of what this kingdom looks like. And again, we could spend a long time unpacking that. But for a brief snapshot, let's look at something that Jesus said to John the Baptist. John was in prison, and he sent some of his disciples to Jesus asking, Are you really the Messiah? Are you the one who will bring the kingdom? Or should we be looking for someone else? And we read Jesus' answer. He said this, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus was saying, yes, the kingdom is here. It is amongst you. Look and see the evidence of the kingdom of God, the rule of God. These are some of the signs of the kingdom. When Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of the devil, Satan was given dominion over the earth. And all the decay and rottenness and evil and sickness and pain and death that we see are consequences of his rule. But Jesus came to break his power and to start the process of reversing all the damage and destruction that he had brought. And through his death and resurrection on the cross, Jesus did indeed break Satan's power once and for all. But he left it to his church to continue the process of extending his kingdom. And we want to be part of that, don't we? When we look around and we see the effects of sin, we see so much brokenness and pain, we see it in ourselves and we see it in the world around us. And our Father is saying, I want this to change. And I want you to ask me to bring change. And he says that I'll answer your prayer through you, my children, my body here on the earth. We are the means through which God's kingdom will come. Whenever in the name of Jesus we take a stand for peace, for righteousness and justice, whenever we act with love, goodness, gentleness and kindness, whenever we do anything that undoes or counters the work of the enemy, we are bringing the kingdom. And many of these are things that we can do, at least to some extent, using natural means. And that's good. Let's use whatever gifts and talents and resources we have to bring the kingdom by whatever means possible. But let's not forget that the king of this kingdom is a supernatural God and his kingdom is a supernatural kingdom. The signs Jesus pointed to included the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, the sick healed, the deaf hearing, and even the dead being raised. We don't want to limit our involvement in the coming of the kingdom to those things that we can do on our own. We increasingly want to see the things that only God can do. So Jesus tells us to ask the Father for his kingdom to come. And there's some mystery here, isn't there? Why tell us to ask him? Isn't God perfectly capable of doing his will without us having to ask? And of course, he is. And the Bible doesn't actually give us a direct answer to that question There are a number of things I think we can deduce, and one of those we explored last summer, and that is that it gives us the privilege and the opportunity of working and partnering with God. It allows us the privilege and satisfaction and excitement of working with him. It's an opportunity for us to grow in relationship with him. But a second reason that I think is significant is this, and that is that it reminds us of our dependence on God. See, if God did everything without being asked, we would just be tempted to think they were natural. There's just things that happen. And we would be tempted to live independently of God. Think, for example, of the sun shining and the rain falling. 
You know, there are many people that live as if these aren't God's provisions. They don't acknowledge God's hand in those things. And that's not how God wants us to live. And taking a step on from there, I think it gives us a clue as to why God doesn't always answer at the first time of asking. You probably will remember the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. He was praying for rain. He went to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed down with his face between his knees. And I think we can assume that this means he was praying. Then he sent his servant to go and look towards the sea and there was nothing. And he did this seven times before the servant reported that he saw a small cloud the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Why didn't God answer until after seven times of asking? And I think part of the reason is this. By making Elijah keep asking, God ensured that Elijah knew that he was completely dependent on God. Imagine that if every time we prayed, God answered straight away, like us switching a light switch and the light comes on. Wouldn't there be a temptation for us to think that we had some kind of control or power? that by our action, we could make something happen. See, by sometimes making us wait and sometimes making us ask repeatedly, God reminds us of our complete dependence on him. Now, God in his grace often does answer a one-off prayer, but sometimes he calls us to persist. Even Jesus, who himself was divine, the son of God, often prayed for prolonged periods. And through history, we see that many great moves of God were preceded by persistent prayer. In the story of Elijah, after praying seven times, the servant saw a small cloud rising. And that small cloud was soon followed followed by a deluge. And we want the deluge, don't we? We've seen some great things happen already, but we want more. And my suspicion is that we won't see it all at once. My guess is that we are going to have to pray and keep on praying. And I confess that I'm not great at persisting in prayer. But I believe that's part of what our Father is calling us to do. And some of you are already good at this. And I want to encourage you, keep going. Even step up a gear. Some of you are more like me and your prayer is a bit more intermittent. I want to encourage you too. Let's together raise our game. Our Father wants to pour out his blessing. He wants to see his kingdom come even more than we do. But he wants us to ask. And I want to encourage us here as a body here at Beacon to ask and be prepared to keep on asking with a new level of determination and expectancy. Let's eagerly desire that our Heavenly Father will move in supernatural power among us as we seek for his kingdom to come. Jill shared a word last Sunday, a picture of Jesus holding out an ingot of gold in each hand. In one hand, a small ingot, in the other one, a large one. It really isn't greedy to ask for the big one. We want all that our Father has to give So let's ask for more and let's keep asking until we receive it. I just want to finish with a little illustration. Some of you know I had the pleasure of spending a few days with my parents skiing at the beginning of the month. You know, when you come down a mountain, you know 
where the hard slopes are. And you can tell, because at the top of these slopes, there will always be lots of people congregating in little groups. See, people will ski down the mountain and they'll stop at the edge of that slope and they'll look over the edge and they'll say, whoa, that looks steep. And they'll step back a step or two and then they'll talk amongst themselves. But then after a few moments, what you see is that one of them will turn, point their skis over the edge and they will go and the others will follow. Well, why do they do that? Well, they do it because they know that although it looks challenging, and they know that they might end up slightly out of control, they know that there is the risk of a tumble, maybe even the risk of getting a little bit hurt. But they also know that unless they go down, they won't experience the thrill, the exhilaration, the excitement of going down the slope. And if you're going to go skiing, that's what it's all about. <laughs> And I think for some of us, there's a bit of a parallel here as we talk about asking God to do more supernatural work amongst us. I know I feel like one of the people gathering at the top of the slope. I feel nervous. I like to feel in control. I don't like the idea of doing something and falling. I especially don't like the idea that I might end up looking foolish and having my pride hurt. I'm not very keen on stepping into the unknown. But you know, I also think that as Christians, this is what we were made for. To walk in the footsteps of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, doing the work of the Father, seeing his kingdom come. This is what being a Christian is about. So mixed with the apprehension, there is also anticipation and excitement. I said then these little clusters that you see at the top of the slopes, but the people talk amongst themselves. What are they talking about? Well, I think they're encouraging each other. They're saying, go on, you can do it. It'll be great. Come with me. And I want to encourage us to do the same, to speak positively to each other, to encourage each other, and not just to each other, but as we prepare to come and pray in a few weeks' time, let's speak to our Father. Let's ask him for encouragement. Let's ask him to stir desire in us. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to embolden us. And remember that any misapprehension we feel is in our minds. There's no real risk. We are in the hands of our Father in heaven. We are loved. We are secure. We are children of the King seeking to do his work to see his kingdom come. That's what we were made for. Amen.